Chapter 4 of Theophilus, or Love Divine, by Pierre du Moulin, translated by Richard Goring. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Five means, or helps, to inflame us in the love of God. Now we are to treat of the means to nourish in us this love. It is surely an effect of the spirit of sanctification which God giveth only to his children, whereupon this spirit is called the spirit of adoption by the Apostle, Romans 8, because it is not given to any other than the children of God, which he hath adopted in Jesus Christ, and that therefore he frameth their hearts unto a childlike love, and to have recourse unto God as their father. It is requisite that the grace of God should prevent our wills to make them willing, that it may accompany them, that they may will fervently, and that it follow them, to the end they may not will in vain and without fruit. It is God which bringeth forth in us, with efficacy, both the will and the deed according to his good pleasure. Notwithstanding, God moveth us not like stones, he maketh us follow willingly, he bendeth our wills by an unconstrained necessity. For this cause is it that we are called workers together with God, and that in the same place where St. Paul saith, that God giveth the will and the deed according to his good pleasure, he willeth notwithstanding that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. The means, then, which we have to employ ourselves in the nourishing and cherishing of this love of God in us, is, in general, to give ourselves to good works which be pleasing unto him. But in this travail I find five helps by which wisdom joined with piety, through a holy industry, do quicken this love in us, and do put matches, as it were, unto our hearts, thereby to kindle this spiritual flame. These means or aids are 1. The image of vices, 2. The choice of friends, 3. Hatred of the world, 4. Prayer, 5. The hearing and reading of the word. The first help or aid of the love of God. Those who void out of their lodgings their stable dung do fatten their fields withal, and by ridding themselves of this infection do otherwise make a profit thereof. The faithful Christian ought to follow this example, for it is the duty of piety to discharge ourselves of those vices which are of ill savour before God. But Christian wisdom findeth means to draw even from this filth some commodity. He then, which would seek some model whereon to form the love of his God, ought to observe amongst all the rest the most monstrous and the most obstinate vices, and they are so all indeed. Yet I think that extreme avarice doth some deal bear away the bell, let it then be exposed to open view, and let this monster which corrupteth man when it is within him teach man, being thrust forth, and instruct him afar off. For will you love God as you ought? Love him then, as a man extremely covetous loveth his money. Avarice taketh away rest, and troubleth sleep. His money is the first thought at his waking. So let the love of God break our sleep, possess our thoughts in the night. Let it be the first of our thoughts at our awakening." to meditate on his former graces, to dispose of our future life, to bewail our sins at the cock-crowing. Covetousness doth shut the heart of the covetous into his coffer, where his treasure is, so also let the love of God fix our hearts in heaven, to the end that there where our treasures be, there may our hearts be also. Avarice snatcheth out of the niggard's hand the bread he should eat, and maketh him be content with little. So must the love of God teach us abstinence and how to bring under our bodies, to live with little, 
and to deprive ourselves when it is requisite of temporal commodities for his service. The avaricious man undertaketh for gain long voyages, sequestering himself from his wife and children. So must the love of God prepare us to endure banishment, to leave wife and children to follow God, remembering the saying of our Lord, Matthew 10, Whoso loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, or whoso loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The covetous man, having put his money into usury, calculateth the time, and with impatience attendeth the term. So we know that God hath in his hands our pledge, and that he will render us our alms with usury, ought with impatience to attend the time of payment, and in the meantime very preciously keep his obligation, which is the doctrine of the gospel. The covetous man, the older he waxeth, the more greedy he is to gather. He liveth poorly, that he may die rich. His purpose to gather is at the greatest when the term of his life is at the shortest. So must the old man, fearing God, make more careful provision of faith and good works. Let him live poor in worldly goods, that he may die rich in heavenly. Old age is the grounds and lease of life, but in the faithful man it reneweth as unto an eagle, for then he feeleth more lively and certainly the motions of the life to come. Then hath he the wager almost in his hand, being near the end of his course. When the rivers are near their end, and approach unto the sea, the tide cometh towards them, and meeteth them. So when the course of a faithful man's life cometh near his end, then God cometh to meet him, and before death giveth him some taste and feeling of the life to come. Then it is that we ought to have a holy covetousness to husband our time, make a stock of faith, send our good works before us, and to make ourselves friends which may receive us into everlasting habitations. This meditation, which giveth vice a double construction, and maketh it look both ways, enforceth it to be an example and help unto virtue, as Amoria captives, to cleanse and deck the tabernacle, as a woman of Heth whose hair and nails are cut off. Deuteronomy 21. For virtue is so feeble in us that to raise itself up it borroweth help of vice. It passeth over to the Philistines to wet her tools because we cannot comprehend how much we owe unto God, but through the consideration of that which we give unto our concupiscence for all that is stolen from him. The second help unto the love of God. The sheep of Jacob brought forth spotted lambs according to the colour of the rods were laid before them. So men produce works conformable unto the objects which they have before their eyes. And this is a great evil, that good examples have nothing like so great force to form us unto goodness, as bad have to induce us unto evil. For, as a man strucken with the pestilence will sooner infect a dozen sound men which shall approach to him, than these whole men can help him. In like sort, a vicious man will sooner infect many honest men than he will correct himself by their example. For vice is here in his own soil, it cometh up without planting, it groweth without pain, much more then being fortified from without and well laboured, but virtue is a stranger, and resembleth a grain brought from the east, which after much care and labour doth yet little prosper but degenerate, especially in the contagion of these times, which is as the dregs and sink of all seasons and ages, in which virtue is a prodigy, and piety a crime or simplicity. For thus do men call foolishness in this age, in which, that they may render or make virtue to be odious, they clothe brutishness with his habit, even as it is uneasy that the flocks feeding amongst the thorny bushes should not leave some of their wool, so is it hard for an honest man, living amongst so great corruption, 
but he must leave some of his innocency. We fall away insensibly, we go on in badness without being aware thereof, like people sleeping in a boat, and carried down the stream, which make much way without thinking thereon. Wherefore we are to look to ourselves, and in so contagious an air, to provide ourselves of preservatives, of which the best is the love and fear of God. And this love is nourished by haunting those which love him. We must acquaint ourselves with such as we should be like, to the end that the faithful, with some few friends loving God, withdrawing himself, as it were from vices, may look with horror upon them, as from afar off, upon this overflowing torrent and powerful rain of the devil, comforting himself in the meantime in God and relying on his love. This same friendship among the faithful will serve the better to make them know themselves, for seeing we be blind in our imperfections, we ought to borrow our friends' eyes and lend them ours, to the end we may mutually reprehend and correct one another. These serious reprehensions of a friend do more good than praises, were they never so true. Whoso shall take away from friendship the liberty of reprehending, leaveth nothing that may distinguish it from flattery. And seeing that we are naturally lame and benumbed in things touching God's service, we must employ the help of our friends, to the end they may bring us into this bath to receive healing. For God communicateth not his graces unto us, that they should fade and vanish with us, but that we might multiply our talent, and that the spring of his spiritual benedictions, which he causes to break forth in us, may run out and serve for instruction to our neighbours. As Christ saith to St. Peter, But thou, being converted, confirm thy brethren, for if God command us to take up our enemy's strayed beast, how much more to reform the soul of our friend when it wandereth out of the way of salvation. This communication also among the faithful bringeth comfort in affliction, which, being divided among many, is more easily borne. Many small brooks reunited in one channel carry great vessels. Many afflicted spirits joining themselves together by concord and mutual support will easily bear an affliction. And the word of God witnesseth unto us that God looketh on, hearkeneth unto, and taketh pleasure in the consolations and mutual exhortations of his children. So the prophet Malachi in the third chapter saith that when the proud are esteemed happy and the bad advanced, then those which feared the Lord spake one unto another, and the Lord was attentive and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him, for them which fear the Lord and think on his name, and they shall be mine, said the Lord, when I shall lay apart my most precious jewels. Oh, how precious a treasure is a virtuous friend, fearing God! And would to God that, as we are used to know by certain marks the goodness and courage of a horse, so also in the choice of friends, that we might with the sight of a man know his virtue. But the lurking holes of the spirit of a man are so deep that he deceiveth both himself and others, and he is hidden even from himself. Yet by man's innocency of his actions, sobriety of his words, by the simplicity of his habit, by his zeal and ardour in God's cause, by his disesteem of gain, by his eschewing of pleasures, you may very probably know the purity of his mind within. Even as by the marks coming forth of a heap of ashes, men know the hidden fire. The Third Help of the Love of God The disesteem, likewise, and hatred of the world doth not a little aid unto the love of God. For the love of the world, saith St. James, is enmity against God, and St. John likewise. If any one love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By the world I understand human business, worldly pomp, carnal enticements, earthly desires, deceitful and uncertain hopes. 
Whoso loveth God will look on these things with disdain. He will pass over all the ages of man, from his conception unto his rotten sepulchre. He will consider all the conditions and states of his life, his certain misery, his uncertain hopes, unfruitful gain. That he may say with Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Looking on these things with a disdain mingled with compassion, a disdain extending even unto hatred, when he shall consider wickedness to be mingled with vanity, and the devil to have so established his reign in the world, that it is a kind of miracle and prodigy to see therein a good man. So as the prophet Isaiah acknowledgeth, chapter 8, Behold me, saith he, and the children which the Lord hath given me, for a sign and for a miracle in Israel. Now, if it were a miracle in Israel to see a family instructed in the fear of the Lord, how much more amongst infidels, and if in Jerusalem, how much more in Babylon? It is then without reason that we wonder when we see examples of disloyalty, cruelty, uncleanness, seeing that, on the contrary, the Spirit of God teacheth us to hold the example of piety and the fear of God for a miraculous and unusual thing. These and such like considerations, joined unto the feeling of the excellency of the children of God, will cause the faithful to esteem himself better than the world, and looking on the earth as a place cursed, will live therein as a passenger and traveller. As an Englishman that should travel over Persia or Tataria, intending to return into his country, for he will not answer as that philosopher, who being inquired of what country he was, answered that he was a citizen of the world. But the faithful saith, he is a stranger in this world, and a citizen of heaven, and therefore withdrawing his affection from the world, and raising up his heart unto God, he doth like him who from the top of the Alps, where the air is clear, looketh upon the fields beaten with tempest, the country all about foggy and misty, and there rejoiceth himself, resting himself upon the love of God, which hath delivered him from this general malediction. So in the twenty-ninth psalm, after having represented the tearing of the cedars, the shaking of the mountains, and the discovering of the forests by the force of the thundering voice of God, he withdraweth the children of God out of this confusion, and assembles them into God's palace, where he is glorified, and assures himself that God will give peace and strength unto his people. For in this palace of God, which is his church, doth sound that voice, not which shaketh the mountains, but which assureth our hearts, not that voice which rooteth up the cedars, but that which comforteth our consciences, not that which causeth the hinds to cast their young ones, but which maketh us to conceive hope. It is the word of the gospel, in which God layeth open the treasures of his love, in which whosoever shall take a relish, he shall find the sweets of the world to be bitterness, and hating the same will learn to love God. Now we say this not to discharge ourselves of all earthly things, this carelessness of the world hindereth not the love of our children, nor the care of our family, nor our endeavour in the administration of our magistracy. But the faithful will do all these things, as a passenger fits himself in the best manner he may at some inn. He who is not to stay there above a night will not stand to build a wall, and if he suffer there any discommodity he will patiently digest it, because it is but a passage. For the faithful will follow domestical and civil affairs, not as if he meant there to set up his staff, to tie thereunto his designs, or therein to place his hope. His thoughts will ever be in some other place, and during his business will ever think of the vanity of his travail. He will always begin his actions with the service of God, and invocation of his name, and that shall ever be the first, which he will have last. Whilst worldlings, after the example of Martha, pain themselves excessively in domestic affairs, he, after Mary's example, will choose the good part, which shall not be taken from him, 
placing himself at Christ's feet to hear his word. If he have any worldly fears, they will give place unto the fear of God. If he have any hopes, they will give place unto his hope of the kingdom of heaven. If he have any sorrows, they will be swallowed up of a greater sorrow proceeding from the sense of his sins or the bruisings of Joseph. God himself herein is an example unto us, for in building of the world he hath done contrary unto men which do build also. Men begin at the foundation, but God beginneth at the top. He stretched out the heavens before he laid the foundations of the earth. The natural works of God are spiritual instructions unto the end. To the end, that we may follow this order, and that we may ever begin by the care of heavenly things, the earthly will present themselves in the second rank to be thought on, not of love or of purpose, but by necessity, and as much as is required, for not seeming cruel unto those which be ours, or enemies to ourselves. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and the righteousness thereof, and all other things shall be administered unto you. Matthew 6.33 The Fourth Aid of the Love of God Frequent and often prayers do likewise nourish this love, I mean as well public as private, for the public are a choir of sighs, a harmony of affections sent up with one accord unto God, which imitateth that holy consort of the angels and souls of the saints sounding on their harps in heaven, whereof mention is made in the fifth of the Apocalypse. In our private prayers the faithful man, being hidden from man's eyes, discovereth himself unto God, maketh his complaints to him with a childlike familiarity, prayeth unto him, not of custom, but with affection, with words broken off with sighs, which are used even in the midst of business, through a gentle distraction and wholesome interruption, which prayers have no other motive but love, nor other subject but necessity, or other eloquence but affection. None craveth an alms with the flower of rhetoric. Familiar simplicity is very comely in prayer. To make these solitary prayers, Isaac went out into the fields, so King Hezekiah turned his face under the wall for fear to be troubled in his prayer. So the apostles and Peter went up unto an high room of the house to pray alone. Jesus Christ himself in the sixth of Luke withdrew himself into a mountain to make his prayers, and continued therein all night. Both these sorts of prayers have promise of God to be heard. As touching the public, our Saviour promiseth us that there, where two or three be gathered together in his name, he will be in the midst of them and that all which they shall ask with one accord shall be granted them. As for the private, he also speaketh thus in the sixth of Matthew, When thou prayest, entering into the closet, and having shut the door, pray unto thy father which is in secret, and thy father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. These prayers are so many matches of the love of God, for as soon as God will be prayed unto by us, this is a great witness unto us that he loves us. Our importunity is pleasing unto him, he giveth by his commandment free access unto our prayers. That we may obtain his graces, he demandeth no other price of us but our prayers. For rivers of his goodness, he demandeth but some drops of our thankfulness. He is attentive unto the cry of the afflicted, he is nigh unto them which call upon him. If the cry of dead Abel's blood came up unto him, how much more the cry of his living children which call upon him in the name of Jesus Christ. If he reckon our hairs, how much more our sighs and our prayers which he himself hath prescribed us. Add hereunto that prayer is a strong bridle unto us to hold us in the fear of God. For this only thought, that it is before him that we present ourselves, before him who knoweth our hearts, who seeth all our filthiness through the cloak of hypocrisy, obligeth us to purify our hearts and our hands, 
to wit our thoughts and actions according to the commandment of the Apostle. I say, saith he, that all men make prayers in all places, heaving up pure hands without anger or debate. On the contrary, God, by the prophet Isaiah, rejecteth hands full of blood, even when they lengthen out their prayers. Then, when we come to frame our prayers, each word that we say is a lesson or a reproach. For example, we thus begin the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven. In calling him Our Father, we learn, on the one part, to be his obedient children, and to be persuaded of his love. On the other side, to despise the world, as inferior to our dignity, seeing we be the children of God. This word also of our frameth us unto charity towards our neighbours, and to procure their good not only in our prayers, but in all our actions. And these words which art in heaven advertise us to seek for heavenly things, and that our conversation should be as that of heavenly citizens and children of the heavenly king. Then, when the faithful shall come to propose his demands, he will chide himself on this sort, I crave of God that his name may be hallowed, and yet I profane and dishonour it. I desire that his kingdom may come and be advanced, and notwithstanding I resist and foreslow it as much as lieth in me, unwilling that he should reign in me, not subjecting myself unto the sceptre of his kingdom, which is his word, nor contributing anything to his church, which is called in the gospel, God's kingdom. Item, I pray his will may be done, and yet I resist his will. I beg my bread, and yet covet another man's. My daily bread, and yet my covetous care, extends itself unto many years. So likewise we crave that God would forgive us as we forgive them which have trespassed against us. And for all that, we are unreconcilable, our hatred is mortal, or to say better, immortal. And yet fear not that God should hear us, pardoning us according as we pardon our neighbours. So we desire not to be led into temptation, and yet we run after temptations, bad companies, books of love tales, after enticements and occasions of doing ill. Finally, we finish this prayer with mention of the kingdom and glory of God, by which this same prayer began, that it might warn us that even as our prayers, so also all our affections ought to begin and end with the glory of God. So many petitions, so many advertisements, for Jesus Christ, most artificially by teaching us how to crave for good, teacheth us also to do it. In ordering our prayers, he also ordereth our actions. So as speaking to God, we also speak to ourselves, by praying unto God, we learn also to fear him. And surely, when you shall see unruliness in a household, either by disobedience of the children or by dissension between man and wife, it is a certain witness that God is not there called upon as he ought. For this only action of lifting up our hearts and hands together unto God might have sufficed to reunite their divided affections and entertain from day to day their family in the fear of God. For by speaking often to God, we learn to love him, and loving him to follow him. Moses, his face became shining for having spoken with God, so our souls will become enlightened in the knowledge of God when we shall have often accustomed them to speak with God. These very same prayers do nourish faith and by consequence the love of God. For if we trust in any one, we must necessarily love him. Prayer without faith is a kind of injury done to God because we doubt either of his power or of the truth of his promises. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Romans 10. And therefore St. James chapter 5 calleth it the prayer of faith, and saith that without faith we can obtain nothing of God. Yea, truly, faith engendereth prayer, but this daughter nourisheth her mother, and in nourishing faith it nourishes also by consequent the love of God. 
cleaving unto his promises, and strengthening itself by the proofs of God's assistance, as oftentimes as he hath heard our prayers. The fifth aid of the love of God. Now remaineth the hearing and reading of the word of God, the word which is the finger of God, with which he engraveth in us his love, a word which breatheth nothing but love, the hearing whereof maketh the spouse to spring with joy in the second of the canticles. This is, said she, the voice of my well-beloved. And in the fifth chapter, my soul was in amaze to hear him speak. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now this faith is this very same love, trusting in the promises of God. The love of God then cometh also by hearing of his word, God ordaining that as death entered into the world by the ear and hearing of the devil's speech, so life should enter into the ear and hearing of God's word. It is the principal means through which he imprinteth in us his love. For in this word God doth plainly declare his love. It was already a great love to have created all things for man, and to have established him over the works of his hands. David, in the eighth psalm, ravished with this contemplation, crieth out, Alas, what is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou shouldst be mindful of him? Now he saith this, having respect unto the meanness of man, how much more would he have exclaimed, if he had considered his perverseness? He admireth God's liberality towards man in the creation, how much more must we admire his love in our redemption, wherein he not only giveth us his good things, but his only Son, and in his Son himself. He admireth the contemplation of heaven, how much more the possession. He glorifieth God for the domination which he giveth us over the creatures, how much then must we glorify him for our eternal reign with his angels. To this purpose... It is good to observe how the devil, who is God's ape, hath declared unto the heathen many fables, in which they make Jupiter, their god, descend on earth, being drawn thither by love. These fables verily are profane, which plant vices in heaven, to the end they may be authorized. Notwithstanding, I think that evil spirits have formed these impieties in imitation of the doctrine of the gospel. The sum whereof is, that God, being moved with the love which he beareth unto mankind, came down from heaven, and by a spiritual marriage allied himself unto man, clothing himself with our flesh, to join ourselves unto God. For the gospel is no other thing than a means to draw man unto God by the force of this love of God towards man, which ought to kindle in man love towards God. For this cause God, desiring to represent in a word both the love which he beareth to us, and that which he looketh for at our hands, compareth this sacred bond, which he will have with us, unto a marriage, professing himself to be jealous of our love. This marriage is between Jesus Christ and his church, a marriage, the bond whereof is the Spirit of God, whose troth plight is performed in the church, but the nuptial feast shall be in the kingdom of heaven, whose contract is the gospel, a contract whereof the apostles have been the notaries, subsigned with the blood of the Son of God, and ratified by the blood of so many martyrs, yea, even of our time. Add hereunto the evident witnesses of the love of God in the conduct and conservation of his church, according to the recital thereof made in the word of God. How he hath revenged the blood of Abel, how he served as a pilot and steersman to his church, enclosed within the ark, how for the love of Abraham and Isaac he hath stricken or curbed kings, how he prepared lodging for his people in Egypt, how he drew them from thence with a mighty and outstretched arm, having carried his children out of captivity, 
as upon eagles' wings, how he hath given them his law, fed them with bread of heaven, covered them in the daytime, and given them light in the night, driven out nations before them, how his chastisements have ever been interlaced with deliverances, to the end they should not fall asleep in a long prosperity, nor be overwhelmed with too long adversity. The history of Judges, of David and his successors, the deliverance of Babylon, the re-establishment of Jerusalem, is it not a whole web of wonders proceeding from the love of God towards his church? And in the gospel do we not see all the Roman Empire moved and the power of the greatest emperor of the world employed in the numbering of all the families, only to make a poor virgin pass from Nazareth to Bethlehem? curbing with his decree and counsel all the ambition of so great a monarch, and making him contribute at unawares unto the accomplishment of the prophecies. That which is the greatest of the world employeth itself for the least of his children, and serveth for the execution of his love. The Holy Scripture being full of such examples, rightly may be called the book of true love, seeing that therein God not only unfoldeth his love, but also bindeth us to love him, and not only exhorteth us to this love, but also produceth it in us by this same word, accompanying the preaching of the same with the efficacy of his Holy Spirit. And to say true, I think that the most part of us have had experience that after the hearing of the word, the sparks of love do kindle in our hearts, and that hearing God speak, or speaking of God, we are inflamed with his love. So the two disciples, being in Emmaus after Jesus Christ was vanished, said, Did not our hearts burn within us? when he spake unto us on the way, and preached the scriptures. And Jeremiah, in the twentieth chapter, desiring to reserve the word of God in his heart without uttering it, saith that he felt it in his heart like a burning fire. Wherefore so? But because this word received into the hearts of the auditors, heateth them with the like ardour. As also the tongues of fire descending upon the apostles witness that God gave them burning tongues and a word full of efficacy to inflame men's hearts. Wherefore, those, being carried away with their business, or withheld by fear, or persuaded of their sufficiency, neglect coming to sermons, shall insensibly feel that this heat waxeth cold, and that a cowl groweth over their consciences. This negligence will grow to a distaste, this distaste to a disdain, this disesteem unto a hardness of heart, and enmity against God. Whosoever will entertain the love of God in his heart, ought daily to come and hear his word, the which he hath chosen as a wholesome means to move our hearts and to purge our spirits, as Christ saith to his apostles, You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Being there, we must hearken to the preaching with greediness, suffer reprehensions gently, receive exhortations with ardour, and even as those upon whom men mean to make some incision, suffer themselves to be bound and pinioned by the chirurgian, lest the motion of the patient should hinder the operation, so must we, when the servants of God are occupied, about pricking the apostumes of our vices, and cutting off our concupiscences, which St. Paul calleth our members, stay our moving, lightness and inconstancy, lest it hinder the efficacy of this word by our impatience. To the hearing of the word we must add the reading, according to the example of those of Berea, who, after they had heard St. Paul's preaching, went and consulted with the scriptures to see the conformity thereof with the writings of the prophets, although that the apostle, being powerful in miracles and in words, did preach with authority enough to be believed, as might be thought, how much more ought we nowadays, at our coming from the sermon, content our curiosity to know if that we hear that day be true? 
We which hear pastors which are not so receivable, but so far forth as they prove their sayings by the word of God. Amongst all the books of Holy Scripture, the most obscure is the Apocalypse, and yet it is said in the first chapter that happy are they that read and those which hear the words of this prophecy. In the seventeenth of Deuteronomy, God commandeth kings to read the book of the law all the days of their life. Reading thereof was the exercise of the Queen Candace's eunuch as he rode in his chariot. If he read, being a pagan, how much more being become a Christian? And if he read when he understood not, how much more when he began to understand? If he read in his chariot, how much more in his house? Also God hath tendered him his hand by the ministry of Philip, and upon the reading the light of the gospel is come unto him, for an argument unto us of hope, that in reading carefully the holy scriptures God will enlighten us. He which accuseth it of obscurity, accuseth it also of leasing, for it saith of itself, that it enlighteneth the eyes, that it giveth wisdom to the poor and simple, that it is a lantern to our feet, and a light unto our paths. If it be obscure, it is, saith the Apostle, to those of whom the God of this world hath blinded the understandings. At least let us have good opinion of God our Father. Let us not think that he hath written his testament in obscure terms and ambiguous clauses to entangle us in suits. The Father of lights is never cause of obscurity. Let us not endeavour to make this word suspicious unto the people, as if the reading thereof were dangerous, as do those profanely fearful people who under every stone imagine a scorpion to look. If there be any difficulties, the rest which is clear is sufficient unto salvation. If it appertain but unto the learned to read the scriptures, it appertaineth then unto none to read them, for nobody is skilful before he have read them. We read not the word of God because we are learned, but to become so. Now here we pass over an infinite number of prophets which we gather of this reading, as is the confirmation of our faith, consolation in affliction, a gentle diverting, a master which flattereth not, a company which is not troublesome, a spiritual munition house which containeth all sorts of weapons against temptations, which furnisheth wherewithal to resist against error, following the example of our Lord, ever resisting the devil by scripture, and saying unto him, It is written, it is written, etc. Only we will stay ourselves upon this, to wit, that the reading kindleth in our hearts the love of God. This is known by experience, for after a man once begins to take a taste in reading the holy scriptures, other studies begin to prove without relish. You shall see no more upon the carpet books of love, the ridiculous romans and tales of Amadis do fly before the Bible more than the devil before holy water. All these pleasing and vain readings which busied the spirit and tickled the imagination do lease their taste after this spiritual nourishment. Another kind of love is kindled in the spirits of those which daily propose unto themselves the witnesses of the love of God towards us contained in his word. This meditation furnisheth us with a just subject of complaint, for then, when they burned us for reading the scripture, we burned with zeal to be reading them. Now with our liberty is bred also our negligence and disesteem thereof. We are barbarous and new to seek in the language of God's spirit. Our hearts then resemble flint stones which cast no sparks, but when they are strucken. Many will have a Bible well bound and gilded, lying upon a cupboard, more for show than for instruction. We love but the outside thereof, we adorn the Holy Scriptures outwardly, but it were better it might deck us within. It were better it were torn with often reading, that thy conscience might be more entire, for it is more easy for thee to have another, than it is easy for thee to be an honest man without it. 
We desire a fair impression, but the fairest impression is that which is made with the finger of God in our souls. The matrices of these characters are in heaven. This love of God is engraven in our hearts with his hand, and is formed upon the model of that love which he hath borne us in his Son, according, as he hath said in the fifteenth of St. John, As my Father loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. End of chapter 4 End of Theophilus or Love Divine by Pierre Dumoulin, translated by Richard Goring.